Good morning, Journey. And happy Easter. My name is Christian. For those of you who are brand new, I'm one of the pastors here. And we are so glad that you are here. We don't normally dress like this. Um, My wife makes me dress up on Easter, so I promise if you come back next week, I'll look a little different. She's got some friends and relatives who don't believe that I'm a pastor unless she puts at least one picture a year up where I'm not wearing like tennis shoes. Um, And last week I preached in tennis shoes and a baseball jersey. It was Royals Day uh, and it was awesome. But happy Easter. We're glad you're here. We baptized 23 people last week to kick off Easter week. It was unbelievable. And to cap it off today with all of you hanging out with us, we are, uh, man, we're really, really blessed. You know, when I was younger, my parents didn't, um, they didn't want me to watch scary movies. Uh, and, and when I was younger, I thought that was because they wanted to protect me because I grew up in an era, I'm 37, with some, I mean, a, a pretty good series of scary movies uh, that were out and about. There, there was a series called Friday the 13th uh, with a guy named Jason who, um, who ran around in a hockey mask. Um, and it, I mean, it was scary. Like if you show up to my house on Halloween with a hockey mask on, um, even if you're three feet tall, like I might punch you in the throat. Like, like Jason, Jason was scary. Um, there was a guy named Freddie, um, Friday the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, who, who came and haunted kids. And, and I wasn't allowed to watch Nightmare on Elm Street. And then there was a show that, uh, that I used to watch at one of my friends' house called Tales from the Crypt. Uh, like a little skeleton narrator guy. And by the way, if you're under the age of like 18, I'm not recommending you watch any of these. Like, please don't go watch these. But it was scary. There was one about a hitchhiker who, like I still kind of, kind of give hitchhikers a lot of room when I pass because of the things that happened when I was younger. And I, th- I thought my parents didn't want me to see that because they were trying to protect me. I realize now that I'm a parent that I, I think more than anything, my fear, it just kind of inconvenienced them, especially like their night's sleep because I would wake up like scared out of my mind, right? And I grabbed my teddy bear and like I would sneak down the steps and I'd go into my mom and dad's room in the middle of the night and I'd be like, you know, dad, dad, wake up. And he'd be like, what? Like, dad, I'm scared. Can I, like, can I sleep with you guys? And he, he would always say like, Christian, go back to bed. And I said, but dad, I'm scared. And he'd be like, you're 16, go back to bed. <laughs> so I'd take my teddy bear and I'd go back up the steps and I'd go to bed, man, because the, the thought of a dead person coming back to life to visit you, that was, that was scary. Um, now the thought of, of dead people or like immortality is, is a little more sexy than scary. There's an entire generation of high school girls um, and mothers of elementary school kids that, that like are in love with vampires. Um, and I'm not, I'm not judging you, I've just seen your Facebook for those of you who, who are mothers. So um, you know what I'm talking about. And, and like the walking dead, this thought of, of zombies, I mean, it's like, like dead people who have come back to life or who didn't stay dead are really celebrated now more than, more than they're scaring people. But regardless of whether it's scary or celebrated or sexy, the thought of dead people coming back to life in Hollywood, it's just entertainment. But if that would happen for real, like if a dead person would really come back to life for real, that would change everything. Especially if, he, if that dead person wanted to come and find you. And that's where we find ourselves on Easter morning. More than 2 billion people around the globe are gathering to celebrate this fact that a dead person came back to life because he has a message 
for you. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want to share with you one of these messages that he had for people. We're in Luke chapter 24. If you didn't bring your Bible, our ushers have some that you can use. We've handed out more than 700 Bibles. We've actually given away more than 700 Bibles since our church began about three and a half years ago. So in just a moment, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They'll have stacks of Bible. If you want one, just so you can read along today, just wave at them and they'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible, put your name in this one and keep it. It's our gift to you. Uh, Happy Easter. Or fire up your phone or your tablet, whatever you use to follow along. Because we find ourselves in Luke chapter 24, um, and it's Easter Sunday. It's Easter Sunday morning. Jesus has just risen from the dead. We're moving into the afternoon hours of when Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus, this man who is dead, who's come back to life, shows up on a journey that these two guys are having. We only learn one of their names. His name was Clopas. And he has this conversation with them over a walk of seven miles that changes everything. And in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, it's Easter Sunday. Jesus had just raised from the dead. And here's what it says. Now that same day, still Easter Sunday, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them. Now, let me say this right at the outset of this message before we continue in the text. A seven-mile walk with Jesus would change your life. If you haven't already, reach inside your bulletin, pull out some sermon notes. So uh, I've given you my notes so you can kind of follow along. For those of you who like to learn, it's going to help you. For those of you who just want to know when it's going to be over, it will help you. Because the closer we get to the end, you'll know, hey, we're almost done and we can, and we can go eat lunch. So you should have it either, either way on your lap. But a seven-mile walk with Jesus would change everything. Like if you're walking about two and a half hours, two and a half miles per hour on a treadmill, it's about three hours, two and a half to three hours with Jesus. Could you imagine on any day in your life spending two and a half to three hours with Jesus alone where you could just ask him anything? You, do, do you have any questions for Jesus? Because I do. I mean, if I could spend some time with Jesus, I got some questions for Jesus. Like, like who killed JFK? Like, I, you know, I, I was a history buff that would be one of the questions I would ask Jesus. Like, Jesus, why did Madison Bumgarner have to be born? Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I was not in agreement with that decision. For those of you who just turned to someone and said, who's she? You're not going to get it. Don't, don't, even, don't even worry about it. Why would Zane leave one direction? I mean, like, there's a lot of questions, right, that you might want to ask Jesus. And you can imagine how this conversation unfolded with these guys and not just the answers that Jesus gave. But the friendliness that existed in this man. I mean, Jesus was a unique human being. The love and affection he would have shown these, like, like I think you'd feel safe with Jesus. A seven-mile walk with Jesus would change your life. And that's what happened for these guys. I'm going to fast forward to the end of the text, and then we'll come back and read it. But in verses 31 through 32, we see the end result of a seven-mile walk with Jesus, and it changed him. Here's what it says at the end of this walk in verse 31. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. Verse 32, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road, and he opened the scriptures to us? I'm going to be real honest with you. Today's goal is that in this seven miles with Jesus, here's our goal. Today's goal is that your eyes would be opened like they've never been opened before spiritually. 
Because the seven-mile walk with Jesus will change your life. And my goal is that your heart would feel who Jesus really wants to be in your life. Like it's never felt it before. I mean, we're here because we're celebrating Easter. We, we get the dead alive the resurrection thing. But my goal today is more than to just celebrate Easter. My goal today is that your eyes might be open like they've never seen Jesus before. And like your heart would burn inside of you where you would physically feel your heart beating as you learn how Jesus wants to be in your life. That's the goal today. Hopefully, we'll get there in about 20 minutes. So let's pick up the text. Verse 15. It says, as they talked and discussed these things, what's these things? Jesus was crucified, buried, and now they said he was alive. Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So we asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Clopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's everything in the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached a village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it. He began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? Why well, talk with us on the road and open the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together saying, it's true. The Lord has risen. He's appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened to them on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now, question. What could Jesus have said on this seven-mile journey that took these people from having a knowledge of an event? I mean, they just gave us the gospel. Jesus was crucified. He was buried. They said he rose again, but it had zero impact on their soul. What is it that took these two men from, any, from knowing about an event, Easter, to knowing Jesus in a way that their eyes were open and their heart changed? That's what I want to try to talk to you about today. I want to try to cram seven miles with Jesus into about 20 minutes of discussion today. And I want to show you what I think Jesus said, because I think if we could understand Jesus like these two men understood Jesus, for some of us, our life would be forever changed, forever different. Now... As we get into seven miles with Jesus, just a little quick background on the depth of the conversation, why it probably took a few hours. The Apostle Paul is a man who wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote 44% of all the books in the New Testament. He wrote 26% of all the verses in the New Testament. So one out of every four verses from Matthew to Revelation, Paul wrote. And one of his favorite words for the plan of God in our life, a word he used 16 times in the New Testament, is the word mystery. The Apostle Paul made it very plain that it was difficult to really understand how Christianity works. Paul said, there's a lot of people who know a lot about God. They've not really grasped this Christian thing. There's a lot of people who are very religious. They've not really grasped 
this Christian thing. Paul called it a mystery. It was his favorite word for Christianity. He said, you really got to dig in to understand how to be close to Jesus. In Ephesians 5.32, he said it this way. This is a profound mystery, talking about Christ. The things of Jesus, they're kind of profound mysteries. And it's interesting that one of the very first conversations that Jesus ever had in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus, and one of the last conversations that Jesus ever had in Luke 24, we're, we're trying to help religious people who had a heart for God, had a history with God, who were trying to kind of pursue God and honor God. He tried to help them understand how to take their next step and know Jesus. One of his first conversations and last conversations, trying to help religious people understand how to connect to Jesus in a way that changed their soul. And there's probably a lot of us in here like that today. We've got pieces of the big picture but there's a little disconnect where, where we, like we've grown up around God, but we wouldn't say we feel deeply connected to God in our soul. There, like there's, there's just a line missing somewhere. Ha, have you ever had a favorite song that every time it comes in in the car, you sing it, you love to sing it, you sing it at the top of your lungs, but there's this one line you're not really sure what it says. So you just, you, you just kind of make it up as you, as you go. I was doing that with the first worship song because the words were like coming on the screen as it went. So I, I just like made up the whole, whole thing as we, were, as we were going today. We last year were on vacation with our kids and our kids were sitting in the back seat and they both had their iPods and their headphones. And you know, we, for, for, before you judge me, we were gonna try to do one of those like organic hippie vacations with no electronics. We got like 30 minutes down the road and like it was so annoying. The kids engaged in our conversations. I was like, give them, give them their stuff. We're, we're not gonna be able to do that. Shut them up. So they're in the back seats and they're, they're jamming to their stuff. And I'm like you, you know, I want my kids to listen to good, wholesome music. So we've got a Christian playlist that our kids listen to. And Casey was listening to one of my favorite Christian bands from the 70s called Queen. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard about Queen. <laughs> and, and she was listening to uh, We Are the Champions, which I, I think is a song about overcoming sin or something. I mean, I've not done a lot of research into it. And like my little girl Casey is full of life, right? And she's in the back seat, and I mean, she's singing this song at the top of her lungs, even louder because she's got headphones on, and she doesn't know how loud it is. And she's like, we are the champions, we are the champions. And I could tell she kind of mumbled through, because we are the champions. And I listened as she sang this loop two or three times, and I thought, she's not mumbling. She's actually saying the same words every time. They're just, they're just the wrong words. So she got done with the song, and I said, Casey, what are the words to that song? Said, Which song? So we are the champions. So we are the champions. I said, just say it. We are the champions. We are the champions. So what comes after that? And she said, Utafaluta. <laughs> and I, I said, so what? Said, we are the champions. We are the champions. Utafaluta. I said, Casey, it's not a Samoan song, sweetheart. Those are, those are not words. Those are sounds. And I was like, that's, that's not the song. It's no time for losers. And she said, no, dad, it's Utafaluta. <laughs> she said, let me play it for you. So she played it for me, and like with it blaring, it kind of sounded like that. But I said, Casey, no, that, I know the words to that song, because I also listen to Christian music. And that, that is, <laughs> it's no time for losers, because we are the champs. There's a lot of us in here that between like God, Christmas, Easter, heaven, eternity, we've kind of filled in the gaps as best we know how. But if you were to ask us, do you really feel deeply connected to God in your soul? The honest answer would be, no, not really. 
I mean, I know about God, and I've celebrated God, and I do the Easter thing. These guys had a knowledge of God, right? He was crucified. He was buried. Everybody said he rose again, but it had not impacted them yet deeply. There was a line missing in their story. I, I think Jesus filled in the missing parts for these religious people, these good people, these God-believing people, these God-pursuing people, people who were trying to be God-honoring, but deep down, they realized, you know, they celebrated spiritual events, but they didn't feel close to Jesus. These were people who were very religious, but they struggled to feel like they had a relationship with the God of the universe. What did Jesus say to them? I think he explained two things to them that if you and I understand these things, it might, it might change the way we see God. It might change how we feel about God. I think Jesus told them that a relationship with God demands perfection, but not our perfection. This would have been a novel concept to these Jewish men 2,000 years ago. And perhaps, perhaps this is the first time you've heard this, and perhaps you've lived life with God at, a, at an arm's length from you for this very reason. Somebody has told you that to be close to God, to be a Christian, you got to be perfect. And you say, that's, that's not me. If, if a relationship with God demands perfection, I can't have a relationship with God. I think Jesus came alongside these men and said a relationship with God does demand perfection, but not your perfection. We live in a culture obsessed with perfection. Like I heard last night that up to 5 million people less will watch the national championship game Monday now that Kentucky has lost because nobody's going for a perfect season. 5 million people who really don't care about who wins the basketball NCAA championship. They just care if somebody can be undefeated winning the NCAA basketball tournament. The Patriots a few years ago, people tuned in while they were perfect. And as soon as they lost, every NFL team, if you, if you look at authors, they want to write the perfect book. If you look at musicians, they want to play the perfect song or write the perfect song. If you look at gymnasts, Man, there's hundreds of gymnasts who have won gold, but we remember the ones that score 10.0 on an event. You know, when it comes to perfection, our culture is obsessed with perfection, writing the perfect movie, having the perfect nails, going on the perfect diet, having the perfect body, wearing the perfect diet. Like, we are obsessed with perfection. And even more so in this culture that Jesus lived in 2,000 years ago. In verse 27, I want to show you why I think Jesus was talking about perfection. In verse 27, Jesus began to talk to them about how to see him through this lens. It says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He basically explained the Old Testament to them. But he began with Moses. Moses, he didn't begin with the person of Moses. He began with the writings of Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament that are called the law. And if you have any knowledge of Old Testament history, the Old Testament was fixated on the law, the lamb, and judgment with future hope of a savior down the road somewhere. The Old Testament, if you get into the Old Testament, you're going to realize the Old Testament is fixated on a bunch of rules that you have to keep to be close to God, and they are rules that you cannot keep, or you don't want to keep. They are rules that the people of Israel for thousands of years failed to keep, and because Israel, Israel was different than we are. You know, like, if you've taken a little bit of American history, you know, America left Great Britain to get away from the monarchy, and, you know, they set up a democracy. Israel was neither a monarchy nor a democracy. They were what's called a theocracy. There's not very many of those in the world today, which means they were a nation governed by God. 
And God basically said this, not only as individuals is your connection to me based on your perfection, but as a nation, your, your success as a nation is based on a nation being perfect before God. And these were, these were people in Israel who grew up under the heavy hand of Rome because they couldn't be good enough spiritually. These were people who, as religious as they wanted to be, they never felt close enough to God because they had things in their life that God wouldn't allow. And there was this massive chasm between the law that they couldn't keep. They had this lamb, this sacrificial thing that, you know, once a year the high priest would go and he sacrificed a lamb and that was supposed to cover all your sins for a year so you could feel close to God again. But these two men were people who never really felt close to God because they felt like their hearts weren't good enough for God. These were men whose lives and whose nation and whose history was destroyed because of bad decisions. And I want to stop and speak into that right now. Because there are some of you in here today, you think when it comes to you being close to God, you think when it comes to you being close to Jesus, you think when it comes to you becoming a spiritual person, that that chance has already been destroyed because of decisions that you've made in your past. Because of the consequences that you're living through of things that you've gone through. And I'm here to tell you, I think Jesus told these men today, your life does not have to be destroyed by your past. I think Jesus told these men, your life does not have to be defined by your past. Your life and your legacy and your connection to God does not have to be defined based on the worst decision that you ever made. Your life doesn't have to be defined as, as the person who's living through the consequences of some terrible decision someone else made. And your relationship with God is not determined based on you being good enough for God. A relationship with God demands perfection, but I think Jesus told these men, it, it doesn't take your perfection anymore. You see, Jesus didn't come to make us perfect. Jesus come to, came to connect us to him because he is perfect. See, once a year this lamb would come and the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb would allow the people to feel close to God. And isn't it interesting how Jesus' cousin John the Baptist introduced him to the world in John 1.29. It says the next day when John saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came so that our imperfection would be good enough for God because he was going to cover it up. I think Jesus needed these men to understand, and I think Jesus wants us to understand, having a relationship with God is way more about connection than perfection. Having a relationship with God is not based on how well you followed the rules this week, this year, this, this past month, the last decade, or any point in your life up to today or even in your future. Having a relationship with God is not based on you perfectly following the rules. Having a relationship with God and being connected deeply in your soul is based on a connection with Jesus. And I think as Jesus began to say this, these men's hearts begin to stir inside him. And they thought, boy, I don't know if I had that. Peter, in the very first message he ever preached after the resurrection of Jesus in Acts 4, 11 and 12, said, Jesus is the stone the builders rejected that's become the cornerstone. And salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's not a person in here who can or should be willing to commit to a perfect life to be close to God. Because we can't do it. But you can and should commit to connect your life to Jesus so that the Lamb of God can cover your imperfections and help connect you to a God you couldn't be connected to without him. So I think Jesus came to say, look, a relationship with God demands perfection, but not your perfection. You don't have to worry about your past in order to have a future with God. Secondly, 
And Jesus came to tell these men that his death was not the end of hope. It was the beginning of hope. Jesus' death was not the end of hope. Life wasn't over because he had died. Life was just beginning because he had died. Look at verses 19 through 21, and we see some hopeless people. They, they, they were talking, and they asked Jesus, haven't you heard about what, what happened? And in verse 19, he said, what happened? What things? They said about Jesus and Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. They said, we had, we had, had hope that Jesus was going to help us be connected to God, but he's dead now. Death had destroyed their hope, but Jesus' death was not the end of hope. And it's interesting as we look at Scripture and just as we look at life, as we live life, death destroys hope because our soul longs to live. Death destroys hope because our soul longs to live. When we sit at someone else's funeral, we don't have a lot of hope. When we sit in a hospital room with someone who's moving towards death, we don't have a lot of hope. When we're given our own terminal diagnosis, we don't have a lot of hope because our soul longs to live. And in Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon said, God did this so you'll think every now and then about life beyond this life. Solomon said, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he set eternity in the human heart. Solomon said, even on the very best day when everything is perfect and beautiful and your mind drifts to, there's got to be more. God put that there so you'll pursue him and reach out to him. I believe every one of us has a soul that will live for eternity. I believe every one of us has a soul that looks forward to eternity and is unsettled until eternity is settled. And that's where these men were. They were just uncomfortable in their spirit about what might be next for them. The Apostle Paul actually said people who don't think like this actually have a pitiful life. People who don't look forward to something next. He says kind of a pitiful outlook on life. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, and 20, Paul said, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That word firstfruits means the first of many who will come later. So we see in Luke chapter 24, we see in John chapter 3 that just being a religious person doesn't offer the inner peace of eternity. And it's really not meant to. Religion is a great stepping stone to walk us to the threshold of having our eyes open spiritually and having our heart burn within us. Religion's a step that I'm glad was a part of my life growing up. It's been a part of my kid's life growing up. I want to put them in environments to hear about Jesus. But at some point, they have to settle in their own heart, their own eternity, and their own connection to God by what they do with the opportunity to follow Jesus. In John chapter 3, we see this story laid out perfectly. We see a man who was not only religious, but Scripture said he was a religious teacher in Israel. This is someone who was pursuing God but did not have peace in his heart that he was at peace with God. And here's how the narrative goes. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus went to Jesus to basically say, if you read this whole conversation, I've been a religious person my entire life, but I feel like 
something is missing in my relationship with God. Jesus would give his most famous verse he ever spoke, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said that in response to this conversation. It was, that was a conversational verse that he had with Nicodemus because Nicodemus said, I, I'm religious, but I don't feel close to God. And Jesus said in John 3, 3, one of the most famous verses in all of scripture, he said, unless a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born again, they can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, I don't understand how that works. You know, this verse, John 3, 3, I think I've quoted John 3, 3 more than any verse in the history of my life. And, and there's a reason for that. Like, it's probably the only verse seared into my conscience. Because I went to a Christian college, uh, played football at a Christian college, Liberty University in Virginia. And if you've ever been associated with like a Christian school or a parochial, parochial school, there, there's a tendency sometimes if you go to a Christian school to kind of like over-spiritualize like everything. Like, you know, like every math problem is, you know, okay, Noah took two kinds of this animal and two kinds of this animal. How many animals? It's like, okay, there's no Christian math. Um, like anything beyond a whole number is actually satanic math. I mean, I, like there's, he's like, but there's a tendency to over-spiritualize things. So we kind of did that. Like our, uh, like our, our team breakdown, like most people, when they get together, like at the end of a practice, the end of a weightlifting session, before a game, you know, they say like, yeah, one, two, three Tigers or, you know, one, two, three Jayhawks or Titans or whatever school you go to. Ours was a Bible verse instead of like a, like a mascot. Like we would get together and we would say a Bible verse. Now, maybe that's because we had the worst nickname in sports history. Uh, our nickname was Flames, which it's a very awkward word to shout at any, you know, at any, it's probably a dangerous word to shout um, at any time. We were playing against the University of Marshall my, uh, my junior year, and we ran out in like 40,000 strong their entire, uh, their, their entire stadium was chanting, flamers, flamers. It was, it was very awkward to run out to play football being serenaded. by. So we, so we, didn't, we didn't say our nickname. You know, we, didn't, we didn't say flames. We said a Bible verse. And the Bible verse was John 3, 3. Somebody, somebody would get in the middle and they'd say, except a man be born again. And everybody else would say, he can't see the kingdom of God. And then he would say John and everyone else would say 3, 3. Hundreds of times I heard this verse. Except a man be born again, can't see the kingdom of John. John 3, 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. It wasn't really intimidating, I don't think, in a football environment. Like we'd be on our sidelines and we'd be like, one, two, three, Jesus. And like we'd look over, they'd be like, one, two, three, kill. And I would think, dear Jesus, they're going to kill us. Like that, like this... We've just prophesied about this, this game. It's not very tough, but I know this verse now. Like I, like, I will never forget this verse. And I can't tell you how many times I've used this verse in ministry because in 16 years of ministry, I'll sit down with people like I did this week and people will say, you know, I've kind of grown up going to church all my life and I've been around it. I just don't feel connected to God like you're connected to God. Or I feel like God's trying to do something in me. What's going on? And I ask him this question, when were you born again? And I can't tell you how many religious people say, I don't know what that means. And I say, when did you give your life to Jesus? When did you connect your soul to Jesus? When were your eyes opened that it was all about Jesus? When did your heart begin beating out your chest so fast that you said, on this day, I have to say yes to Jesus? See, being born again is a spiritual moment that happens at a defined time in life. In the original languages here, born again means born from above. And it's a moment in your life where spiritually you're reborn. 
And in Luke chapter 24, we meet two men who knew all about the Easter story. They actually told the Easter story to Jesus. There was a guy named Jesus who was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. But they had zero comprehension and zero intimacy with Jesus in their own life until they began to understand that it wasn't their life anymore that counted spiritually. It was what Jesus did until they understood that the death of Jesus wasn't the end of hope. It was the beginning of hope. So let me ask you a question as we close this morning. When were you born again? You know, the the Bible has a deal called spiritual fruit, kind of gives the birthmarks of a Christian. If you're a Christian, here's what Christian looks like. Spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kind of good, faithful, gentle, self-control. There's nine of them. But the Bible also talks about a spiritual birth certificate. Like, when was your spiritual birth certificate stamped? When would you say that you became a Christian? Because I hear people say all the time, well, I've just always been a Christian. Listen, I think you and I know enough. If we were to talk to a butterfly and say, when would you become a butterfly? If that butterfly said, I've always been a butterfly, we'd be like, nah, you don't, you don't quite understand the science behind that. You, you might think you're always a butterfly, but I know that's not how it works. There are some very religious people like Nicodemus and Clopas and his friend who have grown up pursuing God but their heart doesn't feel connected to God. They've grown up going to church on Easter, but their heart has never burned inside them like your heart is beginning to burn right now thinking, I want to be connected. I want to be born again. God's whispering in your heart saying, today could be the day on your spiritual birth certificate that your life begins brand new from above, a spiritual rebirth. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?